You are a god of order and not chaos. Thank you that you have a, um, a purpose and a plan for our lives and for the life of this planet. Thank you, Lord, that you, um, uh, that you are bringing everything into order. And though we cannot see it always, you will lead us and direct us in the path we should take. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you because... Um, Times are difficult and the, the noise is so loud sometimes that being able to hear your voice through your word is such a blessing to us. So I pray, Father, for tonight as we look at this, continue to look at the Gospel of Luke, that you would um, speak clearly to us, or rather I know that you do speak clearly, but that you might open areas so that we can hear what it is you have to say to us through this Gospel. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we were um, last week in uh, Luke chapter 1, and following on in Luke chapter 2, uh, we read um, last week that Mary's faith um, enabled her to trust God and to believe and receive, actually, what the angel Gabriel said to her um, about this baby, this child that she would have, who would be conceived by the Holy Spirit the Son of the Most High God. And um, she was able to just receive that in, uh, in a very wonderful way, actually, um, and be glad of it and uh, uh, be able to see through the difficulties that it would bring to her life and into the blessing of being favoured. The angel Gabriel says to her, blessings or greetings, favoured one. Um, most blessed one, that's translated. And actually, if we read Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, uh, tells us that Joseph, her fiancé at the time, was the same, he, he received it in much the same way. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So uh, Joseph, described here as being a good man, uh, determined to complete the marriage contract. He, um, he was determined that he would do uh, exactly what the angel had told him God had planned. And that's actually also quite amazing. We don't hear very much about Joseph. We, there's a lot of concentration on Mary and on her faith. But here's this man who um, knows what's going to come at him from the people that around him, knows the sort of ridicule and the scoffing that's going to come his way, but nevertheless undertakes to do what he feels God has ordained for him. Um, and actually, if you look back to Luke chapter 1, at verse 38, Mary will say a statement which uh, it would be quite easy to pass over. In Luke, um, Luke 1, verse 38, she says, "'May it be done to me according to your word.'" And I was thinking about that. You know, it struck me, that sentence. May it be done to me according to your word. And actually, it was almost like that's the whole of our Christian life, isn't it? That's the whole of it. May it be done to me according to your word. In that sentence is just the whole of our... Well, it was the whole of her trust. Come what may, may it be done to me according to your word. And it's a challenge, isn't it, that we might get to that place that we can actually say to the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. 
may I be used by you for your plans and your purposes. May my life be poured out, as Paul will say, as a drink offering and the service of other people's faith that I might glorify God. And, um, and so I, I thought before we looked at the specific things that Luke will say in chapter 2, the specific prophecies that he will start to talk about, you know, what does it mean to us? Because we're not Mary. None of us are Mary. We, we will never be in her situation. But when she said this to, to, to Gabriel, may it, done to, may it be done to me according to your word, what she was doing was actually becoming a part of prophecy. She was putting herself into, let's say, divine prophecy. She was putting herself into the plan and purpose of God for the entire world from time beginning to time ending. She was agreeing to go along with his work in and through her, and in so doing, she was becoming a part of that plan. You know, we talk about a tapestry, don't we? And every thread is, is part of this beautiful tapestry. And we, we individualize that a lot and say that my life is a tapestry and God is weaving the different threads and some of them are black and some of them are golden and, and I only see the mess on the, on the opposite side, but he's making this. But actually God is about something so much bigger, isn't he, than my life or your life. He's, a, he's about the redemption of mankind. He's about the the purpose that he had from before the creation of the world and that we won't see fulfillment till until after the thousand-year reign and after the great white throne judgment and after the, at the end of history, we will see that beautiful tapestry when, when we'll, we will look and see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband, as John will describe. And you and I, when we say yes to Jesus we put ourselves in that divine prophecy, in that divine plan. And although it, the Bible is not about me, it's not about you, Christianity is not about you, it's about Jesus, the whole thing's about God, we are not to minimalize that fact. You and I heard the gospel message in some way, shape or form, and we said, may it be done to me according to your word. That's what it is to be a believer. May it be done to me according to your word. And when we say that, God writes us into the plan of, and the purpose that he has. And we're not the people of God. We're not Israel. We never will be. You may want to be a Jew, but you're never going to be a Jew. You're a Gentile, probably. I don't know everybody here, but you're a Gentile. You're always going to be a Gentile believer. You are not uh, you are not a part of the Jewish nation and never will be. God had a plan for the Jewish nation just as he has a plan for the church. They're different plans. They'll all be woven together. But you are now part of those people that Hosea said in Hosea chapter 2. Do you remember when Hosea said, I will call them a people who are not my people. That's you and me, Gentile believers. God now calling us a people who were not a people. We are going to be the sheep that Jesus talks about. We are the sheep. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. That's you and me. I mean, is there anything more wonderful, really? Really? That we would know the voice of God and all we did was hear a gospel message and say yes to the Lord Jesus. Um, 
So I want us to think about that actually a little bit. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's us. That's us. That's you. That's me. The gates of Hades will not ever prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. We may stumble and we may fall. We might look pretty beaten up a lot of the time, but it will not prevail against us. We have a future because we are part of the plan and the purpose of God. And God will use you in so far as and in as much as you surrender to him and say, let it be done to me according to your word. I mean, how wonderful that is. And Luke is recording this for us so that, I I believe, so that we're studying it today so that we will walk in the strength of it. Your life, I mean, how many times do we hear that? Your life is not your own. You've given it to the Lord. But in a way, he's given you the life that you were able to give him back because you had no life before it. He's given you something so magnificent and he will use it for his glory as you say the words, let it be done for me. I don't mean literally those words. You know what I mean. As you surrender to his will for your life. And when the time has come, when Jesus returns, I don't mean when he returns to call us to be with him, that will be wonderful indeed. But when he stands at the end of time and reclaims everything for his father, you and I will be able to say we were used according to the word of God. He used our lives for his glory. It makes me want to cry when I think about it for too much. Someone like me... Someone like you, someone like me, a nobody and a nothing, with nothing to offer, nothing, that God would weave me into this plan and purpose that he has. And I don't want to miss a thing of it, and that's what I think Luke wants us to understand. This is something so momentous, so wonderful, that we're to to kind of absorb this, um, into the very fibre of our being. Not to minimalise it, not to maximise it, to understand it for what it is, but to understand that there is a purpose and a plan and uh, to walk in the strength of it. Um, What does Zacharias... I mean, when when the angel Gabriel comes to Zacharias and says, basically, your wife who's been barren is going to have this child, Zacharias, I'm Zacharias, I'm not Mary. I wish I was Mary to say, yes, that's fine. I'm Zacharias, really? Have you seen who I am? You know, have you seen how old I am? Have you seen how old my wife is? All these reasons why God couldn't use me. And you see how you've got the juxtaposition of it in this first chapter of... Zacharias, no, you can't use me, I'm way too old. Because he's looking at himself in a mirror and seeing his, the human impossibility. And Mary, who looks at God and sees the possibility. Just so wonderful. So, um, God will do the impossible with your life and bring out his plan. And I, for one, want to go along with that. I think in the homework, I, said, I asked you to look at some of the prophecies that Jesus uh, fulfilled at his birth. Um, not all of them. That, um, uh, I think I asked you, what prophecies did he fulfill at his birth? So if you did the homework, 
which now is the testing time. Did anyone do the homework? What prophecies did Jesus fulfill? And if you didn't, I'm just going to run right in and tell you a few of them. So Yeah, at his birth, though, at his birth, what um, what's the prophecies he fulfilled at his birth? Just doesn't have to be all of them, but, s- but specifics. So the first one, yeah, but the first one actually we see in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, the saviour of the world will be a human. He will be a human being. And Christ is 100% human and 100% God. Through the seed of the woman, God says, that he will crush the serpent's head. Um, uh, And then Hebrews chapter 2, talking about Christ being a human being. Being a human being, being a human. Um, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. What does God tell Abraham? Sorry, could you repeat the scripture? Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Yes, me will be blessed. Yeah. But he's talking now, think about this though first, because Abraham is a Gentile. His father was a Hittite and his mother was a something, and I always forget which ite they were, but that's what Genesis tells us. But in Genesis, when God calls Abraham, Abraham is, is, there is no Israel, there's no nation of Israel, but Abraham is told that he will have a people that are yet to be. We know from later on that they're Israel, so we know that the saviour of the world will be a Jew. He will be a Jew and not a Gentile. And he will be a Jew because God will make a nation of Jews. He will make Israel. Now, why is that important? Because God promised that before the nation of Israel even existed. Anti-Semitism, even at the basic human level, is completely and utterly ridiculous because Christ is a Jew. He was a Jew. He is a Jew. He will forever be a Jew he is, in his humanity, he is a Jew. Anti-Semitism has absolutely no, nothing. Not let alone spiritually, but humanly speaking. How can those who, turn, who call Jesus Lord ever be considering anti-Semitism as an option? How can the church think that it has replaced Israel when Christ is a Jew. Uh, it's, it, it, actually, you can't even think about it because even on a human level, it makes no sense. Um, so he's going to be a Jew, not a Gentile. Numbers 24 says the same thing, verse 17, Genesis 12, as I say to Abraham. From uh, Genesis 49, he will be from the tribe of Judah. This is where um, Jacob is blessing his sons before his death and uh, we're told that um, Christ will come from the tribe of Judah. Second Samuel chapter 7, he will be from the family of David. Isaiah 7, he'll be born of a virgin and he will be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. All those things and more fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ. At his birth. All these prophecies spoken in some cases thousands of years before his birth. Um, And now Luke will tell us right at the beginning of chapter 2 that God 
in order to fulfill those prophecies, is going to actually work on a Gentile unbeliever to, to bring about those prophecies. What does he do in Luke chapter 2, right at the beginning? What do we read? <coughs> Caesar Augustus. Yeah, he calls for a census and he's going to issue a decree that everyone must return to their own to the town of their birth, which means that Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. So this is what I mean about Luke showing us, you know, whoever you are, no matter your station, no matter how low or how high, believer or unbeliever, God manipulates the world's events. He puts people where he wants them. He... he, he causes things to happen. He brings life out of things that are dead. He does all things. It's like when, when we hear about Cyrus. Do you remember when we hear about Cyrus and how, um, how his name is mentioned that he will bring about this, the people of, um, who, of, of Israel who've been in Babylon, they will be allowed to go back to Jerusalem. God works through these people, through Nebuchadnezzar, through people that, you know, he just, he works because he is the God of history. So he brings about... Uh, now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census would be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him at the inn. Um, so Caesar has, um, has proclaimed this, and off they go. Almost certainly Mary would have gone on a donkey, uh, because she wouldn't have been able to walk that distance. And when they get there, it's this. Christmas story, there's no room at the inn, and so they have to go into a manger, or, or some people say a stable. I think almost certainly that would have been a cave, not a wooden structure. It would have been a cave, and the manger wouldn't have been a wooden manger, it would have been a trough carved out of the stone. And the people who used that cave would be shepherds, and they would go in there either with just with themselves, or they would put their animals in there in, the, in, in times of storm or when they were, uh, put their sheep in there rather, when there were wild animals around. So whatever picture we have of the nice stable is completely wrong. <laughs> if um, nature, which I did, mm. um, it says it was a, a, a natural formed, yeah. um, like a cave, yeah. it wasn't a built spine. No, no, no. no. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. It, it is it's interesting. Yes, it is. So uh, Joseph finds this cave. Um, as I say, uh, with shepherds, not not a, it was a strange birth. No doctors, no midwives, no clean cloth, no medicine, no hot water, no um, fine linens for the baby. Nothing to wrap the baby in that was clean. Um, no backup system if it all goes wrong. Um, born in a cave, sleeping next to his mother. Yeah. 
And, and really think about it, you know, what are we being shown through the birth of Jesus? I mean, I, we'll never get to the bottom of all that God is showing us, but some things that we're being shown through this most humble of beginnings. You know, what does God want us to know? I mean, when, if you were God and you were taking on flesh, how would you come to earth? <laughs> yeah, you'd come with a fanfare. You'd come with trumpets blowing. You'd come with glorious attire. You'd come, you know, we would all do that. You know, hey, here I am. I'm, I'm coming to save the world. Look at me. And, and so what are we shown in this then? What do you think God wants us to understand? I was just thinking, he would come, I know it sounds funny, but he'd come ready cooked. You know, <laughs> he'd have been born in heaven because who would want the God or the Saviour of the world to be born on this place? Yeah, oh, I see what you mean, yeah. 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 So he mm. would have come already done. Mm. Already done, because, yeah. But he didn't, yeah. because he had to be fully the mess, Yeah. He? In all yeah. the mess. But it's a real example also of how everything in God is completely different. Yeah. In mm. other words, the world would see that as a place of poverty. Mm. He saw it as a place yeah. of great riches. Yeah, exactly. Everything's upside down. Yeah. Everything's upside and down. It was found and prepared, wasn't yeah, it? yeah. So, I mean, what I was thinking about was, you know, how sometimes, you know, I mean, don't you long for God to do something startling through you? Don't you? Something really, mag well, not magnificent in terms of riches, but just really, wow, you know, you want him to do that. I do. I mean, let's be honest, I do. I want him to do startling, amazing things through me. I want to, but actually most of the work that he does, as Eve says, the perspective is completely wrong. Most of the work he does is in us is silent and quiet and hidden. And, and actually to the naked eye is very humble. It's very, you know, small. But um, but God is in that He's in the small and humble business, and that's what we're shown in this, because actually, when you think about it, this is the greatest miracle of all time. It's the greatest miracle. It's 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 better than Peter and John saying to the man who's been lame since birth, you know, stand up and walk. It's better than Lazarus. It's it's. It's more. It's totally unique. Exactly. It's unique. Nowhere else. Yeah. Any other religion. Exactly. No. And it's totally upside down. No. Exactly. It's totally upside down. So um, I've got a question here then. Take a look at the stable. Take a look at the cave and think. Do the great things God wants to do in, for, and through us, what he's doing in, through, and for you, do they bear the same stamp? Do they look the same as the stable? If you look back over your life, can you see God's work in the mundane and the ordinary and the small and the, and the humble and the difficult? Think about that birth, the difficult, the painful, the um, embarrassing, the... I, I don't know, just the... I mean, Mary, I think about Mary, you know, and, and she lived a life of this. Not just the moment of birth. She lived her whole life with this, with this God in the, in the flesh. She lived her whole life out of this beginning. And, you know, and, and can we look at our own lives and see that? This, 
this ordinariness that is the mark of God. Luke 2. Would somebody read verse 8 to verse 20, please? Maybe two people read. Oh, no, just 8 to 20, please. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby, as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Thank you. So, um, might be silent in the cave, but it, or apart from the sounds of a baby crying, but it was loud in the fields with the angels and um, the uh, joy that's uh, resounding. And um, that story of the shepherds who hear about the birth of Christ first. And, and I know, I mean, this is a very familiar account to most of us. And so, uh, you know, we could be excused for seeing the same things in it and I, I don't want to manufacture things out of it but um, why shepherds do you think why why were shepherds the first people to hear about this birth they were sort of one of the lowest yeah um, occupations. yeah I think because the shepherding was a low and very humble occupation um, maybe but also they were watching the sheep yeah would be yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. The shepherds would be awake watching the sheep. And what did you say, Carol? Well, David came out of King David came out of a shepherd. He was a shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. So they are important yeah. Jesus talks about himself as a shepherd. Yeah. He does. He does. He's the good shepherd. Yes. Yeah, they had no thought of it. So not like the scribes and the Pharisees who would have known and been thinking and about it. Yeah. 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 Simple. Simple things. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Caroline. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, they did actually. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah. People say that the shepherds were actually the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, so the shepherds of the people. Yeah, they were the shepherds, supposed to be the shepherds of the people, definitely. Yes. And they were doing a very bad job, as yes. shepherds of Israel tended to do yes. down through history. So yeah. Told. So, no. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. yeah. But some so. people will say that to you. Yes. You think, oh, what? Then you think, no, 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 no. Oh, I see what you mean. They're saying they're literally those. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. No. Not at all. Oh, yes. That's people who want to spiritualize every part of the yes. scriptures and yes. not take it as a historical account. Yes, exactly. That was so interesting, actually. I read in the paper this morning before I got here that they found um, different uh, artifacts and things that prove the existence of Edom, yes. the nation of Edom, which is south of uh, Israel. And the scientists who found the stuff and the archaeologists were surprised that the Bible is actually accurate in yeah. that, <laughs> in that right. statement. And I thought how interesting that is, you know, that we're coming in more and more and more in our day. Pe yes. Things are being found that actually uh, verify for non-believers the, the truth of Scripture. It's amazing how God is making himself evident yes. to people. Um, so what did they do after this, this whole thing? They went to see Mary, they saw the baby, they came away praising God. And what, what then did they do? I mean, it, twice Luke uh, states it in those verses. He says in verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child, and they went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as he has had been told them. So they, the shepherds, talked about this event to everybody who would listen to them. Um, I was thinking about that too, that um, you remember with Peter and John, they're uh, arrested after Pentecost and they're, they're told by the Sanhedrin, can you just stop talking about Jesus? Yeah. And they said, I, we, I don't know whether it's right or not, but all I know is I can't stop talking about what I've seen and heard. And that's a challenge, mm -hmm. isn't it? That's a challenge. Well, I was wondering what the shepherds were talking to, because I mean, if they were I think everybody they came across. I mean, I'm assuming they went into Bethlehem and yes. that they announced this news. I don't know. And then later on, maybe the next day and the day after and the day after that, they were talking. But you talked to everybody. Everybody. Yeah, everybody. No, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's. I do think the more, you know, you say, how do we keep going? And I do think it's almost like singing or music or anything. Yes. You do it every day. Yes. It's just second Yes. Yes. Um, I was uh, in Wimbledon this last week for a while and I went to the church that I uh, did go to whilst I lived there last year and um, they had an exhibition on um, of art through faith and they had a, a, a lady there who was presenting it um, who had come to faith in that church in 2005 or six through an Alpha course. So, uh, and she's an, obviously an artist. She now lives in Rome. And she was talking about the uh, trafficking that goes on and the prostitution on the streets of Rome. And one of the exhibits she had there was a series of um, 
pictures of one street in Rome uh, from morning till night and the different things on it. No people in it, but just different things in these pictures. And, um, you know, she, what she was saying is that this trafficking goes on under the noses of everyone who goes by. The prostitution goes on in plain view. These girls pay the police in Rome for their spot on this street. Um, and uh, she's working, actually, with a ministry out of the States. Tim Keller has got a ministry uh, that's ministering to trafficked um, women and men. But the, the thing that struck me about it, about when she was talking, was... Um, that she had taken her faith and put it into the reality of the city that she lived in. So she was taking what she knew about Jesus and she was actually opening her eyes to what was going on in front of her. And I realized that a lot of the time we don't do that. We, we have faith, we know the truth, we have Jesus living within us by his Holy Spirit, but we don't notice what's going on in, in, under our noses. You know, the, the need, the great need, desperate need of people to hear about Jesus. And because we don't see them, we don't tend to share as much perhaps as we might do if we, uh, if we actually saw them. And that was a challenge to me that um, I don't know that the shepherds went off and told people who, who looked needy. I think they just told everybody. I think they just told everybody they came across. And I don't do that. I don't know if you do, but I don't do that. I don't deliberately, every morning, wake up and say, Lord, open my eyes to see people and to be able to speak about you this day. Of course I do it from time to time, and of course I, it's a general kind of idea, and if a conversation starts, I'll try to get something in about Jesus. But just this understanding that on the streets that of the towns we live in, there is such need and hopelessness, yeah. And, yeah, and the prayer, really, Lord, open my eyes to what's going on, but also, um, yeah, and also enable me to, to just speak out in all these different ways um, about what I've seen and heard. I know a God who changes lives. I know a God who speaks and things happen. I know a God who died for the girl on the street and for the person who trafficked her there. I know a God who, who can work miracles and and this stuff is going on all it's going on all over this country it's going all over the uh, the whole of europe and and beyond i remember years ago driving in paris and and going round is it the bois de boulogne it's on a there's a big roundabout in the center of paris i forget the name of the boulevard but um and as we went by seeing girls naked from the waist up standing on the roundabout, offering themselves. I mean, that's literally, I saw that with my own eyes. That must be 10, 15 years ago. That's what's happening all the time. That's happening in our cities. It's happening in our towns. It's happening all over, not just to women. There are men too. There's all sorts of absolute abomination. And I'm not talking about um, the wickedness of it, the sin of it. I'm talking about the absolute hopeless, desperate need of these people. 
who are doing these things or having those things done to them. And I want to be able to say, Lord, make me like the shepherd who just went and just spoke to everybody about what I've seen and heard, my life, how does my life witness, what has he done in my life that has changed my life? How has he worked in me to, to change me from what I was to what I am now? You know, and you have that story. And that's how he'll um, work through your life, through your personal testimony of what God has done. And so we have to rehearse that and think about it. What has God done in my life? What has he done in your life since you believed? What has he done since you saw him, they saw Jesus, and they were changed. So, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think Ephesus, he says that to the Ephesian church, and actually he has everything else is commendation. He's, he's praising them, Jesus, for, for all the good things they're doing. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Not lost it, I, I don't know where it's gone, but it's gone. But you have actually forsaken it. And um, that's a pretty big indictment. And I think the Western church is guilty of that. Um, yeah. So just really challenging. I mean, challenging me to see, to see something in these verses that I can take from them and um, ask the Lord to change me through them. Um, so let's go on. Luke 2, 21 to 38, please. Could somebody read those verses? Sure. Mm. When eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, <clears throat> Now we are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and of glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed, him, blessed them and said to 
Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's a 38, please. And there was a prophetess, prophetess Anna, daughter of the male of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after the marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving nights and day with fastings and prayer. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption Thank you. Okay, so um, years of silence um, through which Jesus will grow and, um, and uh, God gives the parents, Mary and Joseph, a sign at the beginning of those kind of silent years. We don't, no other gospel talks about Jesus as a child. Luke will tell us that when he's 12, he goes up to the temple, but, um, but, but not very much else. But what God does is he gives... Uh, a sign to Simeon and or to the parents rather through this man called Simeon and Mary and um, uh, why do you think he does that I mean it says that he, he it tells you what Simeon does and what um, what Anna says but why do you think Luke records it and why does God do this for Mary and Joseph yeah, it's another confirmation of the fulfillment of prophecy, definitely, and, and scripture. What else do you think? Well, he can't help himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's interesting that that they're both mentioned, so you've got a man and a woman both mentioned. They're both in the temple. They're both waiting for this Messiah. So they both know the prophecy that Messiah will come. They're both looking for Messiah. And uh, they both see Messiah in this baby that they bring into the temple. But I also think it's interesting that though um, Mary and Joseph both received the truth about what was going to happen to them, it seems immediately, and didn't argue with it and accepted it and understood God is the God of the impossible. Nonetheless, God continued through those first few uh, months um, and years, actually, to, com to keep um, assuring them of who Jesus <coughs> is and their part in this plan and purpose of God. And that's interesting to me because he doesn't just, you know, the reality could be for us that someone could preach the gospel to us and we could believe it and that could be it. Mm. Okay, now you're on your own. You know, go out there and change the world. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I wouldn't know where to go or what to do or how to do it. I wouldn't have the courage. I wouldn't have the strength. I wouldn't know. And so God is so gracious that he keeps coming alongside you and every now and then through his word or in some other way, he is giving you assurance. Yes, this is good. You're on the right track. You're on the right path. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. And he doesn't have to do this. Why does he have to do this? You know, these, these things that Simeon said and Anna said, yes, they're talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. And of course, yes, on one level, that's, that's what this is all about. But on a human level... 
This is for Mary and for Joseph, yeah. And what we hear at the end of this chapter is that Mary pondered all these things. She treasured all these things in her heart. She didn't understand them, but she treasured them. And so, th again, like I don't understand a lot of the stuff that God has done in my life or why he's done it or why some things are happening or why I, I don't understand a lot of it. But he keeps coming back with the assurance, you are mine. I remember when I first became a believer and um, I mean, I was just so, I was 40, for goodness sake, you know. I knew God didn't exist, and I knew that Jesus was not real. And then suddenly, I'm a believer. And it's like, and, and what happened to me was that I, I started not to question the existence of God or Jesus, but to question the depth of my faith, because I know how fickle I am. And I knew then how fickle I was. And I kept saying to myself, I just, is this real or is this just my Japan thing? Is this just what I'm going to do in Japan? You know, in Hong Kong, I was an interior designer. And before that, in Bahrain, I was this. And now I'm just going to be a Christian in Japan, you know. And so for that first two years, honestly, for that two years, I was constantly questioning, is this real? Am I going to, is this real? Not are you real. I knew God was real. I knew Jesus was real. I knew that it was true, that he had died for my sin. I knew that. But it was the depth of my faith. My faith was paper thin. I knew that it was paper thin then, and I know it's paper thin now. But God, but God, he comes alongside, and I can remember clearly where I was. You won't know because it was in Japan. It was in Tokyo. I was on the corner of a street in Tokyo. I'd been out for a walk, and God said to me, I was saying, I just don't know. I don't know if I really believe well enough, if my faith is deep enough, if it's, if, you know, it's going to last long. And God said to me, as clear as day, give it up. Anne, you belong to me. And it was that verse in Isaiah, you know, you are mine. You are mine. You will no longer be called forsaken. You are mine. And it was that, it was that intimate and that personal. Give it up. You belong to me. Of course, in a language, my language, not God's language, but it was that. And he has done that so many times, so many times through the years, when I have been not questioning him, but questioning myself. And so, and Mary must have questioned. I mean, she's just a woman. And Joseph must have questioned. And, and when Mary sees what's un unfolding in her son's life, as she follows that and sees what's going on, and it's not good, and it's hard, and he's opposed, and he's all of those things. And the rest of the family ridicule him, his brothers, and you know, tell him, well, go up to Jerusalem and declare yourself then. You know, he, this is not an easy life. It's not easy for Jesus, and it wouldn't have been easy for Mary, but, but God is just right from the beginning, cementing, cementing, cementing to her. This is right. You're on the right track. This is part of the plan. This is what's going to happen. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. This is, you know. And, and I just think with Simeon, you know, Simeon and Anna, it's just two tiny vignettes of how God does that. Yes, we, we learn lots from Simeon. He comes and he, he makes this statement, um, where are we? Um, and he took him into his arms and blessed God. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. You have uh, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things that were said about him. 
you know, we think of Mary and Joseph and you just think, oh, wow, I wish I had faith like theirs. And I do, I do. But they were still amazed at some of this stuff. They were amazed at it. So Simeon comes along and then uh, we read about Anna, prophetess. She's been in the temple uh, for however many years. It sounds like, I don't know, how many? 70 years, 75 years. Uh, serving, praying. And she, it says she comes up to them. And that means that Mary had to probably go to where women didn't normally, uh, sorry, Anna had to go to when normally women wouldn't go in the temple because they're, they've brought... Uh, um, Jesus in for the ritual and the tradition of the uh, sacrifice. Women are not usually allowed in that place, in the temple. So now she's come into that place. She's come up to where they are and she's made this statement about him. Um, Where is it? Um, And there was a prophetess, Anna. Uh, At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is what's happening here, that, you know, this, the birth of Jesus being confirmed by two disparate people who both have been waiting and looking for the Christ, the Messiah, And you know, remember what Paul says, I think it's to the Thessalonians, he talks about uh, uh, how God, uh, how Jesus will come to all those who love his appearing. Mm -hmm. They were were looking for, eagerly watching for the appearing of Messiah. Well, you and I have seen him. You haven't seen him in the flesh, but you've seen him. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you've received his spirit, you have in some measure seen Christ. Mm -hmm. And you'll see him again. And the thing is, because you've seen him in, in, in this measure, you want to see him face to face, don't you? I want to see him face to face. And the more I know about this world, the quicker I want to see him. He as, as he is, yeah, thank that's you, why Mike. We, uh, that's why we shouldn't worry about what's happening here, because we are not yet. No. no, we shouldn't worry about what's happening here. And we shouldn't worry at all, actually. Do not be anxious. So we should be able to glide from beds of ease and, you know, things like that. But I know you don't mean that, Mike. But the thing is, we have to be aware of what's going on in our world. And because, because while we're here, we're witnessing for him. And we're living lives that are supposed to tell people how he is. And, and one of the things in Scripture that is so amazing, I think we talked about it on the very first, on the opening session, was that... God has gone to great lengths in the scriptures to tell us that he sees every individual. And he, he sees. He sees where you are and what's happening and, and how it's happening. And he wants every individual to know that he cares. He sees, he knows, he cares. Um, and if that's true, which it, it must be, <laughs> then we as his representatives are supposed to see and to know and to care. We're to care about what we see because we're to make a difference about what we see. Not necessarily physically. We can't physically change everybody's life. We can't heal every sick person. We can't, we're not God. But we can evidence Christ to the people that we meet. We can do that. We can speak of him and, and tell them about the hope that we have in Christ. That's what Peter says, isn't it? Every single one of us should be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. Um, 
So Mary stores it all up in her heart and um, uh, is waiting. Um, she, she was waiting uh, for the fulfillment of the promise, sorry, uh, Anna. And, um, and now Mary is going to ponder all these things and um, think about them and treasure them um, because over and over again it is being revealed to her that Christ, this baby, is the Messiah. Um, uh, and it says in verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, he went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began to looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Um, what, do, what do we make of that? What, what, what is Luke telling us, do you think, in there? I mean, a lot of things, obviously, but well, what's, what specifically? Yeah, he was aware. He was growing in wisdom, it says. So I think that there is this, under, this kind of, okay, Luke is telling us this wasn't an automatic, he wasn't born with this superhuman-like brain, and then um, we're told he was growing in this wisdom and understanding. Um, it's interesting, it says he was listening and asking questions. Yeah, listen, yeah, sort of exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it says, doesn't it, that um, he... Uh, he continued, verse 51, he continued in subjection to them. Yes. Why does Luke mention that, do you think? Because obedience to parents. Yeah, exactly. Because Christ had to fulfill the law, and one of the Ten Commandments was, honour your father and your mother. So he does that, and, um, and Luke records that um, for us. Yeah. It sounds it, yeah, but I think that's the translation. It's not, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It so depends how you express it. It's so interesting that people read it. Read it, yeah. You know, you have some very fierce, judgmental people. They come across so hard. You think, Jesus really? Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's a natural place to be. Yeah, it's like when he says to her at the wedding at Cana, you know, woman. It's not yeah, my time. It's yeah. like, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it would have a slightly different, yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. Do you think when he says, why are you looking for 
Yeah. Did you not know I'd be in my father's house? Yeah, I think there is an element of that in there. Yeah, I think there is. I also think it probably took them a while to get back to Jerusalem because they'd obviously gone quite away. So, but yeah, I definitely think there's some of that in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, if we had. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. If we had 50 years, we could probably do it justice, <laughs> but we don't. You know. Um, yeah. So. So. Um, yeah. Mary is is wondering, and Jesus keeps increasing. It, Luke says in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. And then in Luke chapter three, um, everything starts. If you like, everything happens. And um, and now in the 50th. 15th year, sorry, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysania were tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Anna and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Why on earth does Luke put all that stuff in there about who was doing what, where they were? Yeah, this is a gospel to the Gentiles, so he's writing to a Gentile, so he's using the people that this Gentile would know rather than the uh, Jewish authorities. But also, this is a historical document. I mean, Luke is writing history, and so these things are written down so that you can pinpoint them in time. And you can look up the time when Tiberius Caesar was reigning uh, in the 15th year and when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. You can actually... Uh, in other historical documents, look at that time. I mean, for a long time, they couldn't find out who um, Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and it, I'm not saying that right, but anyway, Trachonitis. And uh, for a long time, they couldn't find any reference to Philip. And then, just in our lifetime, they found a seal of Philip, this tetrarch of that area, and know that actually he was there at the time of Pontius Pilate and things. So again, yeah, I mean, well, in, in my lifetime, yeah, in, in, in my Christian lifetime, so that's within the last 25 years. I have found recently as well some um, um, writings on um, solid material uh, concerning the life that they led when they were in captivity. Yes, yes, yes. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what's happening now? What's coming to light in our day? This is the thing in our day. So um, it's time for Jesus to be revealed. Obviously, Luke, Luke takes a big turn now, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And Jesus, we know, is going to uh, start his earthly, his, his ministry, the last three years of his life. And how does it begin? What happens to open the scene, as it were, in, in Luke 3? John the Baptist comes on the scene. And what's he like, John the Baptist? He's weird. He is weird. He is weird. He dresses weirdly. He eats locusts. He, he does unusual things. And, and what is he doing, actually? What does he say and what does he do? According to Luke. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, 
So John is preaching and baptizing. That's what he's doing. And he's announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It depends. They're, they're, they're synonymous. Um, and he is urging people to repent. Um, do you think baptism was an unusual? What sort of baptism is he talking about, do you think? Yeah, he's, he's talking about full immersion. There's no doubt about that. That's, uh, that's clear. He's, and that was not unusual for the Jews. That was part of their religion. Baptism was part of their religion. They had all sorts of baptisms and all sorts of washings. Hebrews chapter 6, remember, tells us, you know, it was about time we left the elementary things of, of baptisms and, and all of that thing. So they understood baptism. They understood what it was. He didn't have to say, they didn't, you don't hear of anyone saying, what, dip in the Jordan, whatever for? You don't have that. They knew what it was for. It was for symbolically cleansing them of sin. Uh, and, and so the repentance uh, that leads to forgiveness. So um, he's, he's doing much more than preaching against sin, though. What is he actually proclaiming? Yeah, he's preparing the way for Messiah. He's, pre he's preaching the gospel, actually, the gospel message. The word preach there, it actually means evangelize. It's the same word in Greek as evangelize. So John is evangelizing. And, and what's his message? I mean, we've already said it, but break it apart again. What is he telling people to do? Repent. He's telling them to repent. Who's he telling to repent? The Jewish people. The Jewish people. He's telling them to repent. When, when Israel came out of Egypt, they went through the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. That was like, if you like, a national repentance. That was like a national baptism. They went out of the wilderness through the Jordan into the Promised Land. So this, in a way, is symbolic of that event. They will understand it. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Um, he's calling who? He's calling the people of God. He's calling Israel. If they had all repented and baptized and, and, and gone through the uh, waters of baptism, what would have happened? Well, yes. Go ahead, no go ahead. Gospel, right? Exactly, there's no gospel for the Gentiles. If the Jews had all repented, there would have been national repentance. Christ would have set up the kingdom of God on earth and reigned on from Jerusalem. And there would have been no gospel for you and me we'd have been dead in the water yeah of course it can't be because that's not the plan and the purpose of God but that's what John the Baptist is calling them to and that's what Peter will preach on the day of Pentecost he'll when he when he's he talks to them and he says who knows if you repent the times of refreshing might come from the hand of the Lord Acts let me just check that Acts chapter 2 um he says, um, uh, I can't find it. Where am I? Where am I? Somebody who knows it better than me, please tell me where it is. Um, I can't find it, but I will find it. Bye, Emmy. I'll think of you tomorrow. <laughs> um, uh, um, I can't find it now, but I will find it before you go home. Luke 2, I'm looking for Peter saying, who knows what might happen. 
Um, hmm. Peter 2.7, is it? Is it? Acts. No. Um, Acts 2. I'll find it, sorry. It's, it's in Acts chapter 2. Um, and basically what he's saying is, uh, if there's repentance now, who knows that the Lord might not bring these times of refreshing. And, and Peter thinks that if the nation of Israel repents of the sin of crucifying the Saviour, mm. that it might be the beginning of the promised kingdom of God on earth. He still thinks that that's possible. And John is, uh, is preaching that to Israel. He's preaching this um, repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins and the bringing about, because he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is here. Mm. Um, and uh, we know from John's gospel, he's going to introduce John as the Lamb of God, the, Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, and um, as I say, he's talking about baptism. What happens now, though, when we're preaching the gospel, when the, the gospel went out to the Gentiles? and we're preaching the, the gospel to the Gentiles, what place does baptism, what does baptism mean when you're preaching that to the Gentiles? I mean, do you need to be baptized in the Jordan River to receive forgiveness of sins? No. Do you need to be baptized by full immersion to receive forgiveness of sins? No. Peter says, water dark doesn't clean anything. So... So what is it? What is the baptism that we receive when we come to Christ, when we hear the gospel and believe the gospel? What is the baptism that we receive? It's the baptism by, yeah, washing away sins, but by the Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. And so the, the, the water baptism in, in the Jordan was spoken to people who understood what baptism was symbolic of. Whereas when we're talking, I mean, I remember the first class I taught in Sarancester, a man who turned up, do you remember him, <laughs> Every week he sat there and he just couldn't have it that, we, we, that some of us might not be baptised by full immersion. And it just, he couldn't stand it. He could, I am, by the way, just in case you're wondering. But he couldn't stand it that, that we weren't teaching that you needed to be baptised by full immersion in water in order to be saved. That is not true. The baptism that the New Testament talks about is the baptism by, with, through the Holy Spirit. Um, yes, water baptism is important. Oh, tell me where it is. It's in, it's in chapter 3. Oh, thank you. Okay, Luke 3. Acts 3, Acts 3 verse 19. Thank you, Acts 3. I know, you can't trust me at all, Acts 3.19. Therefore, this is Peter, therefore repent and return so that your sins might be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. So there's this sense that Peter thought that if they repented, then there would be national salvation, which is what the Jews thought the Messiah would be, the, the one who saved them from their enemies, the one who brought them back to be the great nation they were under David, the one who would restore the fortunes of Israel. Um, and Peter still did at that time. He still thought 
that that was possible. And definitely John the Baptist is coming and he's preaching this, um, uh, you know, repent. Now, John's in, in, John, in Luke chapter 2, he's going to talk about a baptism of uh, fire. Where is it? Where is it? Let's see where we are. Uh, sorry, in chapter 3, he's going to talk about this. Um, now, while the people were in a state of expectation, verse 15, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." What is the baptism of fire? It's judgment. You know, how many times do we hear the church say, send your fire, Lord, send your fire. You know, let's be baptized in fire. You don't want to be baptized in fire. You would be part of the chaff that are going to go into unquenchable fire. So this baptism of fire, yes, Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, but they are two separate things. And, um, yeah, and, and you know that because he doesn't finish the sentence in verse um, 16. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. He continues, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear, clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's the same as the wheat and the tares parable that he'll say later on. Leave the tares to, to continue at the end. You know, they'll be seen to be who they are. Um, he says that at the end of explaining to the people he's preaching to what repentance really is. If you go back in a few verses, he talks, the tax collectors come to him and the uh, other people come to him and they ask him, uh, verse 10, and the crowds were, well, actually go back to verse 7, and he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You'd think he'd have been kinder, wouldn't you? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him teacher what shall we do and he said to them collect no more than what you have been ordered to some soldiers were questioning him saying and what about us what shall we do and he said to them do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages and then he's going to go on to this baptism now think about this what is he actually telling them what is repentance and yeah, yeah. True repentance is evidenced in your life, in what you do. True repentance is evidenced in your life. But don't think, because he says the axe is already at the trees and you're going to be cut down. And someone said to me this morning about, you know, is that us individually as believers now? Are we just about to be cut down because we're not doing the deeds of repentance? So what's the answer to that? 
Yeah, I mean, no, that's not true. Yeah, but, but why not? The religious life of Israel at the time is about to be cut. Yeah, there you go. There you go. The religious, the, the, the whole of their religion is about to be cut down. But also, these people are supposedly the people of God. These are not people who don't know about God. These are people who know about God. These are people who have his word. These are people who have got the promises and the prophecies and all of that. They are supposed to understand this. But, but what's happening in Israel at this time? What, what is the lifestyle of Israel at this time? Hear what the Pharisees say, but don't do what they do. Yeah, but also the Pharisees don't do what what they're supposed to do. So what's happening is, this is a religion by rote and ritual. This is just a, a surface religion. This is not um, words that you want to preach to non-believers. This is not for non-believers. This is for the church. This is for the church that thinks, well, I mean, I was, I was, I was christened as a baby and I was confirmed at 12 and, and I go to church every Sunday and at Christmas, you know, definitely, I, I go and sing carols around my village. And, you know, I, I do all those right things. I'm a good person. I don't commit adultery. I don't do those other things. I'm, I'm safe. And what's Jesus' word to me? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, what, what that is, is just religion. It's religion. It's It's... People making the rules and living by the rules they've made. And what John is wanting them to see is that true repentance affects how you think and how you feel and how you live. Yeah. So th this is a gospel for the Gentiles, but this that he's talking about here, I mean, I don't think we can go out with this and say, you know what, I mean, you, you better be doing the right thing because you're about to be cut down at yeah. the feet, you know. <laughs> chopped down and my goodness are you going to face the fire because you're chaff I mean this is not this is this is for us to understand what is repentance so that we can look at our own lives within the family of God that we have now come into and say does my life show true repentance do I think and feel in a different way do I live in a different way? Am I ready to share? Am I ready to do what is necessary to witness to the Christ who lives, I say lives within me? I mean, these Israelites, you know, they were claiming to be the people of God. And they were very happy with their ticket. I'm in. The rest of you pagans, you're out. But I'm in. You don't have Abraham as your father. Yeah, exactly. We do. We have Abraham as our father. Exactly. And so what we do now as Gentile believers or as, Gentile, as Gentiles growing up, especially in the West, in a tradition of Christianity or religion, we are claiming that same thing. I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. I did all the right things. My parents did the right things. I'm on the right road. It's all going to be fine. This is, yeah. Exactly. Yes. 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 Exactly. Yeah. 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 So John is trying to tell them, you know, this is coming. There's going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit and there's going to be a baptism of fire. In AD 70, of course, the Israel will receive that baptism of fire in, in part. 
in a picture because the Romans will come and completely destroy Jerusalem and um, and uh, and and the whole of Judea and Israel and um, uh, and and this is the warning to them. You know that will be their baptism of fire. It, it, you know, in one way, that will be uh, a symbol of the eternal baptism of fire. But um, that this is going to come. So what is repentance? I mean, if you're preaching the gospel to a Gentile, to someone who doesn't have a tradition, and make no mistake, we live in a, in a country where there are thousands of people who have no knowledge of God or Jesus. They didn't hear about him in school. They didn't read a book about him. Their parents didn't know him. Their grandparents didn't know him. So there's, there's a whole mass of people who don't know anything about Jesus. What are we going to preach to them? Are you going to be going in there saying, you better repent or you're for it? <laughs> it's so important to know the context. What's the context? Who's he talking to? How is he presenting the gospel? He's presenting the kingdom of God that you've been looking for for so long is right here. It's coming any minute. Repent so that you're ready for it. So what are we going to say to people? No. Love, so the good news. The good news. Yeah. Yeah. Then, when they that, then we'll <laughs> chop them off at the knees. <laughs> <laughs> no, but exactly. Our, yeah. The gospel, as Mike said, is the good news. It's the good news. You had no hope. That's the gospel to the Gentiles. The Ephesians will talk about it. Paul will write in Ephesians. You, you, were, you were outside the covenants of God. You had no hope. You are without God in the world. And that's true of every other, every other peoples apart from Israel. They are outside of the covenants of God. They have no hope because they are without God. Even though they think they might know some sort of God, they don't. Every other person apart from Israel is included in that group. So what are we going to preach to them? Literally, give me the words. Only five minutes to go. There so. God loves them. God so loved them that he sent his son. He sent his son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That Christ loved you. That God loved you so much. That he went through this humble birth, this difficult life, this early death where he lived this life, this perfect life, because you and I can't live it, to take us out of the path that we were already on. See, people say to me all the time, how can a loving God send people to hell? Yeah. How can he send them to hell? But the answer is, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He, want to. he came, I was trying to explain it this morning, actually. Imagine you were born on Mars, which is a dead planet with no water, and God is on Earth, let's just imagine, right? And you live on Mars, and there's no way for you to get to Earth. And your planet is dying, and you are dying, and everything's dead. And so God looks at Mars, and he says, wow, look at all those people. They're all dead, and they're all dying, and they're all going to be dead for eternity. Well, I love them. I love those people on there. I'm going to go and get them. And so he comes. He gets born on Mars, on this dead planet, where everything's dead and there's no water, and he lives a life on that planet. And it, all the time he's saying to people, will you just come with me? 
Will you just come with me? I'm, I'm going to take you to a place that's full of life and water and green and beauty and, and wonder. Will you just come with me? And so if you choose not to, you're going to stay on Mars. And you're going to be dead with the planet and dead for eternity. God won't send you there. You're already there. The whole Bible tells us we're already in a way in hell. God has given us over to the things that we want. He's given Romans chapter 1. God gave us over to all the stuff that we wanted. He's calling and calling and calling and calling. He's done it from Noah. Get on the ark. Get on the ark. Come to a better place with me. So the reality is when we're preaching repentance, what we're actually saying is get on the ark. You're walking away. Get on the boat. Get on the plane, whatever way you do it. Get on so that you can be taken out. You don't get a ticket till you do get out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say just now that, uh, okay, fellas, come on, I'll take you to Venus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. No, no, I wouldn't say anything. So, nothing like that. I'm like, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Yeah. That he came for the whoever. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. so many people think I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Or this person knows more than I do. This person's been very godly. Yeah. This It is tragic. It is. Yeah. 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 
I think that all those things, actually a lot of the that comes out of what we might call a good motive. I don't think it is a good motive, actually, because I think Satan's at work through those motives. But it, we would say, I'm sure the Archbishop of, of Canterbury and the whole Church of England and the Catholic Church, and you know, they, they want you to feel that God loves you so much that he couldn't possibly exclude you. And so the way in is actually even before you think and can, uh, can choose, you can be christened or baptized or whatever. But it's a tragedy. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, as soon as you you start to love people more than God, mm. then you open the floodgates. Mm. Because if you love people more than God, then you're prepared to do anything and everything to 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 love that person and take them with you. It's only if you love God more that you actually love people correctly. Yes. You, you can't love people then God. You have to love God first and then mm. and then and love that's people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, Father, thank you that um, thank you that we have your word. Thank you that um, we can know you. Thank you that we can know your love and and thank you that um, that you live within us by your spirit all of us who have received Jesus as our lord and savior have received your spirit his spirit who lives within us and thank you that uh, your spirit is um, guiding us directing us challenging us exciting us bringing us more and more into your presence and transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus and lord somehow amazingly we find that's what we want we want to be like Jesus and um, it's just so wonderful, Father, that you would um, enable that to happen in us as we more and more um, say, may it be done to me according to your word. We more and more come into that wonderful unity, Lord, that you have prepared for us, into that sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus and with you and with one another, Father. Mm -hmm. And so I praise you for this group. I thank you that we can meet together. I thank you that we can share and we can talk about our love for you. And I thank you most of all, God, that you opened our eyes to the truth of who you are. Mm -hmm. And I ask, Lord, for you to um, uh, help us over this next couple of weeks. We won't meet again for a couple of weeks. Just help us, Lord, to remain focused and to um, really dive into these truths that you're telling us through Luke's gospel. Help us to see things we haven't seen and to understand more about you through this, this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, thank you.